Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. Let's start out by doing something a little radical. As we delve through these pages, we always want to do so in a season of prayer. So before we begin looking at Scripture, let's ask the Holy Spirit for His guidance. Heavenly Father, as we come before You now, we do ask that You, who are the author and perfecter of our faith, uh, would now take the time that You would use the power of Your Spirit to instruct us, to make the Word that You've put before us come alive in our hearing, so that we might not only learn this uh, as a bunch of facts, but that we might learn Lord, to apply these lessons, these examples, the mistakes, as well as the victories to our lives, and that also our faith might be increased by hearing about, of the stories of heroes past and by, uh, by seeing your nature for fulfilled through your relationship with them. So guide our conversation this evening as we commit this time and ourselves into your hands without any reservation. Uh, please bless these efforts so that we might in turn become a blessing to those that you would have us to, to minister to in the days ahead. In the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Again, we're in session 19. Uh, we are in the last bit of the kings of Judah. Chapters 18 through 24. Next week we will conclude... Uh, by talking about the Babylonian exile, by talking about the differences between the books of the Kings and the Chronicles, and by taking a look at uh, what you all have, what I've asked you all to discuss in small groups, kind of looking at the uh, the more practical side of what we have been learning and the lessons that we've been learning through looking through the Word of God. What can we apply into our daily lives? So again, the Second Kings concentrating on the third section of the book, The Road to the Exile. Now, we're going to cover everything up until the last little bit of it, the epilogue of Judah and the Babylonian invasion. One of the things that I want you to recognize as you continue on in your reading in the Bible, this part of First and Second Kings, and as you're getting into the second book of Chronicles, this particular section, chapters 18 through 25, it happens concurrently with the ministries of the prophets Obadiah, Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. So the events that we're talking about right now happen at the same time as the ministries of these major and minor prophets. The prophet Isaiah is a big figurehead during this particular point in the book as well. His name literally translates to Yahweh or God is salvation. He is married to someone that the, the scriptures don't identify by name, but they mention in Isaiah chapter 8 that she is a prophetess or that she is someone who also has been blessed with prophetic insight. His career was mainly focused in the land of Judah. Um, he takes place during the reigns of King Azariah or Uzziah, depending upon the, the translation that you use, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah possibly into the earlier reigns of, of Manasseh. 
He lived and he, he was in ministry rather for about 64 years, a very long standing, long serving prophet. And per rabbinic tradition, he was actually murdered by King Manasseh. Now the Bible doesn't say that, but this is the traditional oral history that comes to us from Jewish tradition. And the tradition goes that during the reign of Manasseh, as the apostate king was taking power, he was confronted by the prophet Isaiah. And Manasseh decided to answer that by hunting him down. There are really sad, really tragic undertones to this story, if true. And again, it's not found in Scripture, but it's interesting historic context, because if you look back in Manasseh's family lineage, Isaiah the prophet is his maternal grandfather. Legend has it that he had been hidden by God either because a tree, a cedar tree had been specially created in that style, or because God opened a tree to hide him in it, uh, the king, Manasseh, actually ordered the tree to be cut in two while the prophet was still inside. Again, all the more tragic knowing that there was a family connection there. So we open up this session where we left off last time in the rule of King Hezekiah of Judah, a king that the Bible itself says that there was never a king as close to God since the time of Solomon, since the split of the kingdom, and would never be after him, even though at least one of his sons would follow, one of his descendants rather, would follow in his footsteps. So he reigned from approximately 716 to 687 BC. His name literally translates to Yahweh or God is my strength. He specifically was reigning during the ministries of Isaiah, Micah, Hosea. He's even referenced in the book of Jeremiah. He's the son of King Ahaz, the evil king, one of the apostate kings. His mother, though, is a lady named Abijah, who was the daughter of a high priest. One of the things that you need to know from this point of the book on, more often than not, the father had little to do, at least tradition tells us, had little to do with the raising or the early life of the princes of Israel, or in this case, Judah. The father was busy doing the work of governing, fighting wars, and so forth. More often than not, they were raised in the, in the household by their mother. And in the case of King Judah, uh, excuse me, King Hezekiah, uh, he was strengthened in the worship of God. He was strengthened in the things of God, we're supposing, by his mother and his mother's family. He later married also a lady by the name of Hephzibah, who tradition tells us is the daughter of Isaiah the prophet. He was declared king at the age of 25. He was the sole regent over Israel for 29 years. And he was potentially a co-regent with Ahaz for 14 years before that king's death. He is known for quite a few things. Most of that centers around his revival of the worship of God, the sole worship of God in the kingdom of Judah. But before then, there was a lot of international turmoil that he inherited. Hezekiah, through uh, religious influence, ended the tribute that was being paid to the kings of Assyria by his father. King Zennacherib of Assyria took that as a personal slight. And as he rose in power, as he came to the throne and saw this little out-of-the-way province of his empire bucking the trend, he decides to harass them and harass them hard. 
So King Hezekiah ends up in the middle of a lot of embattled positions where uh, the city of Jerusalem itself, he ends up having to refortify. He even digs special tunnels for water, underground, uh, not cisterns, but underground aqueducts to funnel water in, the, one of which remains today, the Pool of Siloam. But the king invades Judah, and Hezekiah finally relents, seeing, uh, seeing the vastness of the army that he was brought to bear. And he raises taxes, he empties his own treasury, he even strips the doors of the temple of their gilding and offers them as tribute to get the kings of Assyria to go away. And they do for a while. But soldiers continue to harass Jerusalem. And they, and they shout insults not only about King Hezekiah, but about the God that King Hezekiah represents. Is Hezekiah really a king that God is going to, to treasure because he ripped apart all of these worship centers? They're referring to the pagan worship centers, the pagan shrines that Hezekiah had taken down. Is he, is he really going to have divine protection? Is your God, who he thinks is one of a pantheon of gods, not just the singular God of Israel, is your God really going to be with him? And he actually calls God a liar and says, are you really going to worship God as we starve you out of the city of Jerusalem and you're forced to, and this is a quote, where you're forced to eat your own, uh, let's say, sewage? I won't go into detail, but he's being really insidious here. And the, 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 uh, the Hezekiah's ministers, as they're getting and writing this down, ask him, please don't speak these insults in Hebrew. Uh, speak in Aramaic because we can understand Aramaic. In other words, the, the common language in Assyria at that time. And they say no, and they shout to the walls of Jerusalem all the louder in Hebrew so everybody can understand. God will not defend you, but I tell you what, if you will surrender, if you will rebel against King Hezekiah, we will take you to another land, another land flowing with wine and with fine grain and stuff like that. Effectively, they're trying to sugarcoat what they just did to Israel. And all the people of Judea, the people especially there in Jerusalem, are holding their tongue because they were commanded to by the king. But in the back of their mind is the thought that what happened to Israel their expulsion, their disillusion, and ultimately their destruction as a people is going to happen to them too. That's the threat. Finally, a message, a written message is sent to Hezekiah. It's run to the king. The king takes it and goes before God in prayer. He seeks the counsel of Isaiah, and he literally spreads the message before God. He goes in front of the altar and lays the message out, so that presumably, so that God can see it. And he, he basically says, I have been faithful to you my entire life. I have done everything that you've asked to restore Judah to proper worship. These people blaspheme you, and they're condemning me. So Isaiah comes and he delivers this message, that God would, God himself, for the sake of his own name and the city that bears his name, and for the sake of his servant David, God himself would defend the city. In Second Chronicles chapter 32, we also read that an angel of the Lord descends upon the scene, and before an arrow is shot, the angel kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, passing over the ungodly. Where have we heard a story like that before? This is one of the reasons, and I want you to write this down in your notes, this is one of the reasons that I really want you to pay attention to these historical books, even though a lot of them seem 
impractical in a way because the times, the modern times that we live in, you can argue are vastly different. Two things. Number one, human nature has not changed. The unredempted human nature has not changed. In fact, it cannot change. The only thing that can change human nature is an intervention by God. Number two, God's own disposition, God's own nature, His divine nature does not change. And the more that we read it through the text of both the Old and the New Testament, the more we understand His faithfulness, His righteousness, and His expectation of holiness. So we learn two things. Number one, we learn more about the nature of human nature. And number two, we learn more about the divine nature and our place in the kingdom. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, retreats earnestly. We presume, it doesn't mention the name of the city, but we're presuming he goes back to the capital at Nineveh at this time. And in the presence of his own temple, as he is worshiping his own God, he is assassinated by members of his own family. Hezekiah, we also read, is responsible for the restoration of the temple after a long period of apostasy. He removes the idols from Jerusalem. He raises money for repairs for the temple. He insists that the temple taxes go to the restoration of the temple. And he even hires or assists in the hiring of workmen to see it completed. He destroys all of the pagan shrines in Judah. All the high, the high places remain, the Bible tells us. But in the high places, God is the only God that is served. He also is responsible for the destruction of the brazen serpent from the book of Numbers. Now, if you remember correctly, there was this episode where the people of Israel have grumbled against God. They've eaten nothing but manna. And God sends down serpents, fiery serpents, brass-colored serpents, in other words, who are venomous. And if, if a person gets bitten by these, they die. God sets up a remedy. It's a prophetic image of sin being judged. That's what a brass serpent, brass the symbol of judgment, the serpent the symbol for, for sin, he raises them up. And if an Israelite gets bitten and they stare at this thing and they see that their sin has been judged, then they're healed. Jesus picks up on this later. If I, if the Son of Man is lifted up just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. That's the illusion he's going to. So this artifact, this archaeological treasure from, from a thousand years at this point is still there on temple property. And people are starting to worship it as an idol. So Hezekiah is forced to break it apart and destroy it because they're seeking it out instead of the God that it represented. He also re reinstituted the, uh, excuse me, the Passover Pilgrimage. Now, if you'll remember, there's a handful of, uh, I think there, there are only three festivals that every able-bodied Jew is required to come to Jerusalem for and worship at the temple. Those are Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And he, he makes a point of reinstituting a grand Passover festival. He comes under a major illness. In chapter 20, we read that he, uh, a great swelling has appeared upon, them, upon him. Uh, we don't know the nature of his disease. We just know that he was sick unto death, the Bible tells us. And Isaiah visits him, and he actually has this stark uh, message for him that he needs to put his affairs in order, put your house in order. So Hezekiah the king goes to the temple in tears and in prayer and begs for God's mercy. 
And after seeing the humility of this king over Israel and remembering the king's dedication, before he is able to get past the courtyard, Isaiah is struck with a message from God, returns, and gives news to Hezekiah of his deliverance and his healing. So God adds 15 years to the king's life. And it's unfortunately that two very bad things happen during this time. The first is the, uh, and I hate to put it this way, but the first is that Hezekiah gets a sense of pride about him. The king of Babylon at the time, Babylon, like Jerusalem, is, is a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire, even though this is the point in time where the Assyrian Empire is beginning its decline. The Assyrian Empire at this point in history is starting to lose its grip on its territories and is starting to slide into irrelevance. Uh, the final blow will come later on. But in this instance, Babylon is a, a vassal just the same as Judea. A large one, though, and a very prosperous one. The king of Babylon sends an envoy and gifts to the house of Hezekiah, hearing that he had been sickened to death and yet had been healed. He sends this encouragement to him. And the envoys come around, and Hezekiah, being proud of what had just happened, shows them the palace, shows them his treasury, shows them the temple and all of its luster, shows them his armory. That would be similar to a president of the United States going around and showing a, a, a Chinese delegation the nukes. So he shows the people of Babylon all, of the, all that Jerusalem has, its defenses, its treasury, its splendor. And Isaiah confronts him. Who were these men? What all did they see? Isaiah doesn't need to ask. He's making a point. He confronts the king and he prophesies, he prophesies to King Hezekiah the Babylonian exile. But he gives him this point of grace. The Hezekiah's days will conclude without seeing this disaster come. That Hezekiah, will end, his life will end, but that after the end of his life, then the disaster will come. And Hezekiah says, or he's recorded as saying a very strange statement, and, and it might lose something in translation, it might lose something in the context, the cultural context of our day, but he's... What he says is good, it will not happen in my time, or something to that effect. And the point, it can be taken and has been interpreted in two different ways. Either A, he's still proud. Well, at least I'm not going to see it happen. Either it's that reaction or what God has said is good, meaning whatever God says is good. As though he's resigning himself to the fact that his reign over Judea may be Judea's last great age as a kingdom. Unfortunately, the interpretation remains unclear because, again, the Bible hails him as the greatest king of Judah since Solomon. The other bad thing that happened during the 15-year extension on Hezekiah's life, and I hate to put it that way, but was the, uh, was the birth of the future king of, of Judah, King Manasseh. Manasseh, the name literally translates to, he who has forgotten which is a very apt name for this particular king. He became regent over Israel uh, at 12 and had a very long 55-year reign. As someone who turned his back on God, 
that's horrifying for a multiple reasons. During his lifetime, several generations would have passed who didn't know what it was like to be under a good king. And when he went apostate, he went after the things of God with a vengeance. Apparently, he was raised in a situation where he grew grown up uh, seeing his father being zealous for the things of God, and he himself became a reactionary against them, thinking that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are, is just one God among a pantheon of, of Canaanite gods, when in fact he was the singular and only recognized God. As a result, when he died, he was not buried in the tombs of the house of David. So his rampage against the worship of God, I don't know how else to title it. He reinstitutes Canaanite idol worship. He reinstitutes the persecution of the prophets of God. He rebuilds all the pagan shrines and the high places in Israel, raising Asherah poles, putting Baal worship on full display. He even has pagan idols put on temple grounds. He actively sends out agents to destroy the prophets, to destroy the priesthood, to destroy as many copies of the Torah as he can find. He actually is recorded in this book as having sacrificed one of his own children to Moloch. He put his own son in fire. And again, according to tradition, he murders his maternal grandfather, the prophet Isaiah, for speaking out against him. A lot of the prophetic reactions against him are written down in the books of Isaiah and Habakkuk. Uh, there's also a passage in Jeremiah chapter 2. Right now, I want to, to take a look at the passage that's in this book, where the prophets rail against his work. In 2 Kings 21, starting with verse 10, we're told that the Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah to sin with his idols. What he's saying, what God is saying through the prophets, and God is not mincing words. This king has caused the, the tribe of Judah, the country of Judah, to become far worse than the Canaanites who were in the land before Joshua got there. Their practices are by far worse in fact, you could imagine that they're close to Sodom and Gomorrah. We're talking about him, we're talking about God calling Judah a blight on his own kingdom. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to bring such disaster upon Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance, and I will give them into the, lands of, into the hands of enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes." And have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. God placed his temple in, in his foreknowledge. The pre existent God who is able to see past, present, and future simultaneously. This is where he placed his temple. This is where he placed the seat of power. This is where he placed the kings after David. And he repents of having grace on them based on the amount of evil that they've done. 
Manasseh himself is captured by the Assyrian Empire. Jerusalem, uh, again, is militarily harassed by Assyria. And Manasseh is captured and brought to Babylon. And in his distress, presumably while he is in chains, Manasseh repents. And this is according to 2 Chronicles chapter 13. So I'm giving you more of the additional information that the books of Chronicles provide here. Manasseh repents in prayer before God. And upon his return back to Jerusalem, he cleanses the the temple of the idols that he himself had placed there. And he restores monastic worship. Again, he doesn't take down the high places, but it's the God of Israel that's worshipped there. They become something of local shrines. After his death, his son Ammon, who ironically his name means skilled workman, comes to power. He is crowned at age 22 and he only serves for two years. He re-re-institutes the idolatry of the Canaanites in the land of Judah. Tradition, again, not scripture, but uh, rabbinic tradition claims that he actively burned many copies of the Torah and allowed the temple to fall not just into disrepair, but disuse as well. In fact, there are sources that, set, that go into graphic detail about him allowing cobwebs to build up in the great temple of God. He was eventually assassinated by his own officials. We read about that in, also in more detail in 2 Chronicles 33. He was buried with Manasseh in a place away from, in a garden that was out and away from the place of burial of the family of David. And the officials themselves were later caught and murdered in a popular uprising. We're getting to the point where the Syrian empire itself is starting to venture into collapse. Babylon in the far east is starting to rise to power. Nineveh, which is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire at this point in time, is losing its prominence, losing its ability to hold on its territory, and will eventually uh, fall apart and be usurped by the Babylonian kings. Jerusalem is caught in the crossfire. Once Babylon has dismantled what's going on in Nineveh, the, the, the power that Nineveh has, the power of the Assyrian Empire itself will crumble. It's not as though Babylon just inherits all the lands of the Assyrian Empire. Once Assyria falls, its vassal states, which include the, include the Arameans under Damascus, Jerusalem, which uh, is the area of Samaria, Jerusalem, uh, what we now call Israel, and the lands of Egypt, all of that becomes independent for a time and gets a chance to recuperate and gain some strength back for themselves. themselves. Uh, King Nico II in Egypt actually creates an independent state altogether uh, during his time of this relief. Again, we're back in the lower, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and seeing the revival king, the next king of Israel, King Josiah, another one of the good kings of Israel. The word Josiah is a very apt name for this king. It, It means literally to be healed by God. He was crowned at the age of eight after the death of his father. He reigns for 31 years. According to both Kings and Chronicles, he walked in the way of his father David. Once Josiah dies, he has a whole revolving door of children and grandchildren that inherits the throne in short succession. And they take different names based on who the the megapower, the superpower is in the region. Babylon is rising at this point in time, and Egypt is itself gaining independence. 
So his own children at various courses in time lose their Hebrew names. Keep in the back of your heads that those name changes will take place. It's kind of in the same way that in the book of Daniel we hear that three Hebrew exiles get renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to fit better with the Babylonians that they are becoming a part of. So anyway, during the the reign of King Josiah, he gets incredibly involved with the restoration of God worship, of Yahweh worship in the city of Jerusalem and in, in Judea as a whole. He commits himself to learning about this God of his, his ancestor David when he was only 16 years old. And at age 20, he begins removing the pagan altars and shrines from around Jerusalem and the high places in the, in the Judean area. He orders the restoration of the temple, again paid for, insisting that it be paid for from the temple taxes that were being hoarded up by the priests. During that time, as the treasure house of the temple is being emptied, the high priest Helkiah finds a remnant copy of the Torah. Now remember, there were two kings over Israel, excuse me, two kings over Judah who were trying to stamp out the Word of God, who were trying to actively burn copies of the Word of God. So for the first time in over 60 years, the first time in three generations, they finally have possession of a hidden away copy of Torah. And they bring it to the king. And they read it in the king's presence, and King Josiah rips apart his royal robes as he realizes the depravity and the destitution before God that Judah has committed. And according to tradition, hoping that a a woman prophet would be easier on them than a male prophet, because remember, Jeremiah is at work at this point in time, they consult a prophetess by the name of Huldah. And Hulta delivers a message that God is still going to bring destruction upon the city of Jerusalem. But it will not happen during the reign of King Josiah because he humbled his heart and repented before God. So the Torah is read from the temple and in a dramatic ceremony from the temple pillars. King Josiah reignites his covenant to God and he renews a covenant between the king and the people that are Israel, the people, the remnant at large, not just the tribe of Judah, but the tribe of Benjamin and Simeon that were absorbed into Judah, the tribe of of Levi that had come down from the northern kingdom, and the remnant of the faithful that had come along with them. He rededicates himself as the king. He rededicates the people of Israel, and he rededicates all of their community back to God. He also sends out messengers and and soldiers into the northern wastes of Samaria. Because remember, at this point in time, the Samaritans are becoming the Samaritans. The people of Israel have have been captured, the majority of them anyway, have been captured. And with nose rings fitted into them, or fish hooks fitted into their jaws, have been chained and drug out from the city and dispersed all throughout the Assyrian Empire. So there are only remnants of Jews left in the northern kingdom of of, of Israel. The Assyrian crown has seen to it that people from all the rest of the Assyrian Empire, from Babylon, from Nineveh, uh, from Syria, and and all the rest, they're being poured into the city to to the northern kingdom or to repopulate it. And they've started worshiping the God of Israel after lion attacks, Alongside, but they don't think of God as being exclusively God. 
just like the Canaanites. They think of Yahweh as being one among a pantheon of gods, and they're worshiping him that way, which is one of the reasons why Samaria in Jesus' day is considered cursed ground, and why the Samaritans in Jesus' day are considered detestable to those that maintain a full awareness of the Jewish God. The Samaria itself is cleansed. The golden calves are destroyed. The temple at Bethel is destroyed the same way that it was prophesied by, uh, as Josiah, being the king, prophesied to destroy the temple in 1 Kings chapter 13, 300 years earlier. The pagan shrines are removed, uh, the Bible tells us, from Manasseh and Ephraim in the south of Israel, as far north into Naphtali. Naphtali, incidentally, is the area around the Sea of Galilee the area where Jesus himself would be growing up in. As Assyria has fallen and as they've lost their grip over the province of Israel, Josiah is reclaiming the land, if not politically, he is religiously. He's ordered another great Passover observance and he sent messengers all throughout the hill country of the northern, of what was the northern kingdom, to bring them back home to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship the God of their ancestors. And there is a great revival in the land. The Ark of the Covenant itself, we're told in Second Chronicle, which tradition tells us was hidden by Hezekiah during his trouble with the Assyrians, is returned to the temple, to the Holy of, Holy Place, the Holy of Holies. And he reorganizes back to functioning order the choruses of the priesthood, just as his ancestor David had. Now again, we're in the throw of a political vacuum. Assyria is declining. Babylon is rising. Assyrian vassal states are starting to become independent and starting to reform their own centralized governments. And by far, the most successful of these governments is the, the government of Pharaoh Necho II of Egypt. Pharaoh Necho actually starts marching to assist Assyria and at least offer some support to the city of Nineveh because Babylon is starting its invasion. Babylon is starting to pick it apart. So he's trying to join the Assyrian army for what would become the Battle of Haran. But King Josiah, for a reason that is yet unexplained in the Bible, King Josiah actually ends up helping Babylon in a way. I don't know if he does it deliberately. The Bible doesn't say. But Josiah attempts to block the Egyptian army from joining the battle by putting them in a bottleneck at the Jezreel Valley, now a, near a hill that we know as Har Megiddo. During this battle, Josiah, king over Judah, was shot with an Egyptian arrow, taken back to Jerusalem, where he died and was buried with his ancestors. Now, I want you to recognize something. The Jezreel Valley is a river valley, uh, which Napoleon Bonaparte himself was a fantastic place for a war. Now, knowing what you know, well-adjusted people probably would not recognize the significance of this battle. But since you have been in Bible studies with me before, I don't know that you can call yourselves well-adjusted. You probably know that the word Harmagedo has a, an extreme significance to those of us who are Christian. What does Harmagedo usually get rendered as in English? Armageddon, gold star. So this is one of the many battles, in fact, one of the prof many prophetic allusions to a letter battle of Armageddon. 
after the death of King Josiah, his youngest son is proclaimed in a popular anointing service, popular meaning the people. He is crowned and recognized not as Shalom, but as King Jehoahaz. And he's crowned in roughly 609 BC and reigns for an unfortunate three months. Once the Egyptians lose the Battle of Haran, they march back by way of Jerusalem. And Nico sees who's taken the crown, and he doesn't like it. So Nico II deposes Jehoahaz and instead installs Prince Eliakim, who becomes recognized by... Jehoiakim is effectively his Egyptian name. He is renamed to be, sound something a bit more Egyptian. So he becomes King Jehoiakim over Judah. And Judah for a time becomes a vassal state of Egypt. What is wrong with that? For those of you that have studied the Old Testament, no king over Israel, in fact no Israelite themselves, are, is ever supposed to bow before Egypt. Many scholars and, and many traditional Jews actually believe that the ruling house of David, ruling as in the kings during this period, ends with the death of King Josiah. The kings from here out are mere puppets. Judah becomes a vassal of Egypt, and later King Jehoahaz dies as an Egyptian prisoner. Jehoiakim reigns, but again it's a brief reign. He pays heavy tribute to Egypt. Egypt is eventually defeated by Nebuchadnezzar in a battle farther, farther north. And because of that switch in power, Jehoiakim allies himself with Babylon. And just to make sure that Judah is going to play nice with the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar takes hostages and places another heavy tribute upon Judah. And it's in this expulsion, it's, uh, it's these hostages that includes the person who will grow up to become the prophet Daniel. Jehoiakim is denounced by Jeremiah, among others, for his tyranny as a vassal king who constantly has to raise gold and silver. He overtaxes the people of Judah. He's also known, traditional historians have him as being a person who was associated with all kinds of deplorable relationships. We won't go into that because it's not scriptural. But Babylon eventually tries to invade Egypt itself and gets repulsed by Egypt. So Pharaoh Necho holds his own against the, the upcoming Babylonian Empire, and Judah switches sides as a result. Judah again tries to ally with Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar does not like it. And Jehoiakim ends up dying during the siege of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem again gets plundered, more hostages gets taken, and so on. Jehoiakim's son, Jeconiah, is installed by Nebuchadnezzar. But after only three months, Nebuchadnezzar thinks that the boy is treacherous, is about ready to switch sides yet again. So he gets deposed, and his uncle, the last remaining son of King Josiah, now under the name Zedekiah, is installed as king over Judah. So once Josiah dies, Jerusalem falls apart. Everything that had been stable under the family of David begins to go by the wayside. And God's vengeance slowly builds against the city of Jerusalem like a snowball. Excuse me, even though you had the revival of King Josiah, it wasn't enough to make up for the inadequacies. It wasn't enough to make up for, for the putrefaction that was taking place under King Manasseh. 
because of King Manasseh, Jerusalem's days have been numbered. What is specifically heartrending to note is that he's still, Manasseh was still a descendant of David. Manasseh was still part of the same family that the Messiah would come from. And yet, he was a human being. He faltered, deliberately renouncing God. Can you imagine the excruciating grief on God's heart as he saw his own people called by his name, the city that bore his name, suddenly being guilty of sins that were worse than the northern kingdom, sins that were worse than the the Canaanites who had once occupied it, seeing a king who was a descendant of David throw his own son onto an altar fire in front of one of the Baals. Can you imagine the heartbreak of God? That's where we'll conclude tonight, and that's where we'll pick up next Wednesday morning. So for discussion in your groups, this, um, whenever your groups meet, always share your reading insights. Always share what you're experiencing in your journaling. But I want you to consider these three questions along with it as we're talking about the kings. We live in a nation where we don't have a king per se. Well, we don't have a king at all. We have elected officials. So I want you to think about the example of the leadership that we've seen so far here. How does the world define leadership? What does the world, from a worldly perspective, without Christian influence, how does the world define leadership? What are the aspects that it considers worthy of a good leader? But as Christians, what should we as Christians look forward to in a leader? How would the Word of God, how does the Word of God rather define a good leader? We've seen 20 kings of Israel 20 kings of Judah. We've got 40 kings we can compare, so we should have some idea. And lastly, whenever we as American citizens, whenever we as practitioners in a democracy, whenever we go to the ballot box, what do we use to determine the button that we push, the chad that we clip, or the whatever it is that we do to put a ballot in the box? Do we pray about it before we put it through? Do we ask for God's choice, or do we ask the party, or do we ask something that happens to be a line item on a policy statement somewhere that we just happen to agree with? Do we ask God for His choice, or do we assume the entire authority on our own without going to Him for His guidance? Heavenly Father, again, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for its strengthening power. Teach us with these sessions, teach us from the examples that we read about so that we might glean. How can we be more conformed to your image? How can we be the people you've called us to be? How can we be more the person that you saved us to be, much less the person you created us to be? May we be just as willing to renew ourselves as Josiah was. May we be as willing to humble ourselves before you as Hezekiah. May we learn richly these lessons and apply them so that we might be truly your people, called by your name, professors not just of of fact, but of the gospel. Help us to introduce new people. Help us to introduce new potential brothers and sisters in Christ to you before it is everlastingly too late. In the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen.
Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share his word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.